today on Ag News Daily. Well, I think over the next two years, you're going to see that kind of technology, the smart act technology, really take hold. And, and there's going to be uh, a bigger and bigger audience that, that is drawn to that. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is Friday here in, well, I suppose it's Friday everywhere, but I am here in Des Moines, joined as I'm Mike Pearson, joined as always by my co-host Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing? Not too bad, Mike. How are you? <sighs> Not too bad. I'm stuffed. I just had a gigantic French dip for lunch, and it was mountains of beef, and now I just kind of want to take a nap, and it's rainy <laughs> and kind of chilly, so I might just go do that. It's not raining now. It's a little bit clear. Okay. Well, it's clearing up, but there are some showers and uh, some mm-hmm. thunderstorms making their way across the Corn Belt today, slowing down harvest for those producers who are still trying to yeah. run hard and get stuff done. Yeah, I think I was listening to some weather stuff this morning that said, get in there and run as hard as you can because we're going to get some rain again here, I think, in the next couple of days. Yeah, tomorrow, and I haven't looked that far out, I guess, Sunday. I think the weekend. Tomorrow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Delaney, it is a very important day. Yes, it's your birthday. <laughs> You're yeah. turning a ripe age of 34. Yes, that is correct. I can feel the the aches beginning in my joints, <laughs> and I'm going to start complaining about whippersnappers on my lawn. Oh, you already do that, I think. I know. I'm I'm an old soul, <laughs> Delaney. Old soul. Yes. But young at heart. Young, young at heart, that's right, and young in mind, I think. Young in mind, yeah. Well, you got any big plans for your birthday? Uh, no, I don't. Um, you get to hang out with me. Yeah, we're going to hang out tonight. That'll be huh, fun. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll also be hanging out with former intern Hannah Pagel. She is getting ready to finish yes. up her student teaching for listeners that uh, remember her coming on the podcast over the summer. And we want to see what her future looks like. What does mm-hmm. Hannah Pagel want to do come graduation from college? And yeah, maybe we'll have an update for you next week. Maybe. Yeah, we might, uh, we might have an update. Speaking of updates, Delaney, the news has been updating all day long. What news is jumping out at you today? Yeah, it has been updating, I guess, but it's still pretty slow this week, especially after yesterday's uh, tweets from President Trump. It seems like not a lot is sparking uh, sparking the grain markets in particular. However, there was a couple of good articles I was reading today, and I know that you also saw one of them on DTN's website today. So yesterday night, Todd Holtman, uh, DTN grain analyst, wrote a really interesting art- article Kind of about some of the bullish fundamentals that uh, sparked the grain markets to go 30 cents higher yesterday. And that was, first of all, of course, the tweet sent out by President Trump. But also, we've finally kind of now seen some commentary about Mr. Bolsonaro, um, the new president or elected president of Brazil. Yes, and so, folks, I encourage all of you to check it out. It's on DTN's free page. You can just go to mm-hmm. DTNPF and, uh, and read the article. It's, it's a good take. It uh, certainly opened my eyes a little bit. And, uh, Delaney, yeah. I've got kind of a follow-up to yesterday's Tweet Trade China news. Do you want to hear that? Yes, I do. So we saw the grain market, the soybean market in particular, rally 30 cents yesterday. It was a phenomenal mm-hmm. day. We hit the highest It was the largest gain in 16 months in soybeans yesterday. I believe it. However, in China, their most actively traded soybean meal futures fell 
by the market limit, 5% today at the open. Uh, basically, traders are hearing that more beans might be coming in. And, of course, that's a bearish mm -hmm. signal. The prices in China and prices moved uh, moved lower. They dropped down to $447 a ton, T-O-N-N-E, a metric ton. And uh, that's a two-month low. Yeah. I, I, I'm not – I'm really not surprised by that, though. I mean <laughs> – Especially in this article, it just talks about how he's very right-winged, and he also does not um, You're talking feel Bolsonaro. Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I'm not surprised about the Brazil prices because of the way Bolsonaro has gone about this oh, Chinese Did stuff. I say Brazil? I meant China. China soybean meal prices are oh, down I'm to their sorry. lowest level. Okay. I'm sorry. Two months. Uh, they, they fell their most in five years mm. in China as more potentially though, more American beans. I'm not beans surprised by in. that. So this DTN right. article, I thought the most fascinating part that I think that we should mention is so Bolsonaro is has been dubbed Trump-like, so thinking maybe the same way President Trump does about trade. Trump and other of issues. the tropics, they've called it. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, but I think the thing to keep in mind here, and this article kind of alludes to it as, what if President Trump and uh, President, newly elected President Bolsonaro come together and kind of, you know, align forces against China? Because we, typically Brazil is seen as a competitor for us, but what if we align forces with them and then try to play hardball with China? That could be an interesting scenario. Absolutely. And, you know, it comes back to that point that a lot of people made when President Trump began this trade war that the U.S. going it alone might not have enough power because mm -hmm. Brazil, of course, can grow soybeans. You know, the Europeans can supply wheat. The Russians can supply wheat and corn. You know, China has other avenues. But if there's more leverage, like you say, if Brazil comes on board and President Bolsonaro, President-elect Bolsonaro, really wants to tamp things down with China, then all of a sudden now the Chinese food supply is at risk. And I bet mm -hmm. there would be some concessions. I think you're probably right. I guess I have one other quick piece of updated news on uh, the, the U.S.-China trade situation, mm. too. So apparently after President Trump had his good and long conversation with President Xi, he asked key cabinet secretaries to have their staff draw up a potential deal to stop the escalating trade conflict. And multiple agencies are involved in drafting that plan. So... Hmm. But no, no indication as to when we'll see it, the plan or no. I'm guessing it doesn't say this, but I would guess that they're gonna have it ready by the G20 summit. Oh, well, that makes sense. Right, because that's at the end of November. Yeah, you know, Delaney, at summits like the G20 or the the deal everybody goes to in Basel, Switzerland, every year, mm -hmm. one of the things they always serve is delicious food. You know. When okay. You get, get these high rollers into a place they serve delicious food. And Not like pulled pork. I, I think pulled pork's awfully delicious. <laughs> I ain't too proud. I love me some pulled pork. <laughs> a little baked beans on the side and perhaps a dinner roll, mm -hmm. some scotcheroos mm -hmm. for dessert. That sounds like heaven, don't it? <laughs> but I bring up food because we've got a food case that has been winding its way through the legal system, and a federal judge yesterday dismissed the central claim in the case. Uh, basically, five food producers and retailers have been marketing Parmesan cheese as 100% mm -hmm. grated Parmesan cheese, and they put, put that on a label. However, uh, they found that this cheese also contained cellulose, so it's an anti-clumping agent just so the cheese doesn't, you know, ball up in the container. 
And so they were sued for misleading advertising, saying it was still 100%, and the judge threw that out. So now mm. they are still going to see, you know, 100% Parmesan cheese, even if it has cellulose in it. And they said this was kind of surprising because the judge was in Chicago, and he said there was a lack of proof that the labels would mislead reasonable consumers into thinking the products were 100% cheese. However, mm -hmm. that's in despite of evidence that two linguistics professors and the, quote, vast majority of consumers in a recent survey thought that 100% cheese meant it was 100% cheese. So this is a case right. of, you know... I, I, can, I can see the somewhat misleading advertising, even I if cellulose, you know, doesn't it doesn't change the product or the the properties of the cheese at all. Yeah, it's still not in that can, 100% cheese. But then again, it's also air, and they're not labeling that, so maybe it's similar. Yeah, to that. I guess. I don't know, but I don't I, either. I buy a lot of crap. cellulose and cheese. Sounds gross. Eh, it's just you know. Wood pulp, I basically, dried that, up. right, yeah. Yeah. So there's yeah. there's that story, folks. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if you really want to guarantee that you're getting 100% Parmesan cheese, I suppose, call a dairy, find a processor that's making it, and pick it up at the factory. I guess so. Got to get it straight from the source. That's right. Just go to a cow, milk it, make your own <laughs> cheese. Then you'll know. <laughs> nice. Well, speaking of other court cases, Mike, we've got a little bit of news here on Bear Monsanto's Roundup Ready case that Dwayne Lee Johnson, that groundskeeper from Northern Carolina, mm -hmm. uh, filed. So California. he originally, I'm sorry, California, yeah, he originally was awarded $289 million in compensatory damages, and now a new judge has issued a $78 million payout, which he has agreed to accept. So the uh, San Francisco Superior Court judge, Suzanne Bolinos, I think, slashed the punitive damages when she ruled that the ratio between the compensatory damages and the punitive damages must be one-to-one. -one. So she reduced them quite substantially. Yeah, you said $78 million was the total now, down from yep. 250 289. 289. You know, I I still take 78 million. Yeah, I yeah, sign I think that agreement. It uh, says in the article, and I don't know how much this has been framed, but it says Johnson now near death, according to his doctor. Yeah, said Neil. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Lymphoma. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a terrible cancer, and it, it, you know, heart goes out to the guy, but I'm just not entirely convinced that. A groundskeeper working with Roundup would catch it at a greater probability than a farmer who's spraying right. massive amounts of it and handling it in a large yeah. capacity. That's, right. you know, I think that's the point that that makes me kind of yeah, mm -hmm. think about it again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Delaney, we are going to have a fantastic interview on the state of the machinery market in the end of 2018 with Casey Seymour. I'm kind of out of news. What do you say? Should we hit the markets and jump into Casey? I think we should, but I have just a little bit of an update here on African swine fever from the Chinese perspective. Um, just have a couple of quick points here about what China is doing to basically tighten controls on pig transport to, quote-unquote, contain the African swine fever outbreaks. So they've ordered enhanced supervision of vehicles transporting live pigs to uh, try to contain the disease. Vehicles must be equipped with corrosion-resistant and leak-proof walls and floors. 
Uh, they should also be registered with their local animal husbandry authorities and a couple of other uh, smaller things, it seems like, here to take precautions, um, you know, kind of animal welfare type of things. Don't stress the pigs out, et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, it sounds like they're trying to maybe. I don't know. I get confused because it's like, okay, they released something like this, and then just the other day they said, okay, well, we've shut off this area. Now they can transport again. Yeah. Seems a little fishy. Yeah, yeah, you know, if we could look inside China, you know, who knows what we'd see. Yeah, I don't know. Well, that's the one good thing about markets, Delaney. It's a transparent pricing mechanism that everybody can see globally. Well, it's the good and the bad thing, I suppose, when, when prices are in a downward spiral from a producer's perspective. But they're not today. We're ending the week on a high note. What do you say? Should we jump into it? Mike, let's go ahead and get into today's markets, which, of course, are sponsored by the Zaner Group. They are indeed, Delaney. And listeners, you can get in touch with our friends at Zaner by giving them a call. They can help you manage your marketing risk and put a plan in place to limit that risk. Give them a shout at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at zaner.com. And to round out the week, we've got green on the screen in the grains. Starting with the corn contract, March was up four cents with December 19 up three and three quarters at 403 and three quarters. In soybeans, the January contract was up four and a half cents at 886 and a half with November 19 up three to finish the day at 932 even in Chicago wheat the March contract up one and a half cents closed at 524 and a quarter with the December of 19 down one and a half to finish at 568 and a half jumping over to the world of livestock unfortunately that green couldn't carry over we've got red all down the screen here in live cattle the December contract down a nickel at 117.0750 the February down 15 cents to finish at 122 Looking at feeder cattle, the Nove contract down 80 cents on the day at 152.500. The January down 85 to close at 149.75. And in lean hogs, the December contract was off 7.5 cents at 58.1250, with the February down 40 to close at 64.65. And of course, we can't forget about our friends in the dairy industry. Looking at class 3 milk, the November contract down 11 cents at 14.77, with the December off 3 to close at 15. Now let's get to the host of the Moving Iron Podcast, Mr. Casey Seymour. Well, for today's interview, we're talking to a fellow podcaster, and he also does a couple other various jobs like Mike and I both do. We're talking to Casey Seymour out there in western Nebraska. Casey, thanks so much for chatting with us today. That's great to be on. Thanks for having me on. So tell us a little bit about your background and, and what part of western Nebraska you're in, because I always I always forget. I'm not going to lie to you, Casey. <laughs> now, nah, so I'm out here in Scottsbluff, Nebraska, which is 30 miles from Wyoming, from the Wyoming border. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of geographically, as a crow flies, we'd be hour and a half or so uh, northeast of uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming. So uh, we're out here in the where the where the West begins, I guess is the best way to put it. Absolutely. I mean, that is truly the case. It is beautiful country out there. You got the Platte River Valley, and then it goes up north into the sand hills. And I love Scott's Bluff. But Casey, we got you on here because part of what you do is you do a lot of work with machinery dealers, with folks who are active in the farm machinery market. Can you give us a little background on on what you do? Yeah. So um, I work for for a dealer out here in western Nebraska. And and uh, I also, I started my career, um, I'm not a farm kid, so I didn't grow up on, the, on a farm or anything. So I had to learn 
equipment kind of on my own. And um, the best way to learn that I always found was to talk to someone that actually knew something about it. So I reached out to a ton of people across uh, my career and I made some really good friends and and uh, found a lot of good people to teach me about this industry. So, um, you know, what I do every day is I take a look at what's happening in the used equipment marketplace. I've got some some people that I work with uh, out here, Aaron Fennell and Regina Nargis, that that are uh, on my podcast, but they're also uh, colleagues of mine, and, and we spend a lot of time talking about what happens in the used equipment marketplace from a uh, dealer-to-dealer's perspective, from a, um, a wholesale perspective, when you're talking about working with uh, brokers and jockeys and those kind of things, and then also what happens in the auction market. Mm. And uh, so we spend a lot of time trying to decipher where which way the market's going to head based on what we see happen in those three elements. So, Casey, give us your your futuristic forecast here. Where is the equipment market headed? Well, the good thing about being in this business, everybody gets a crystal ball when you start. <laughs> so <clears throat> I just can't seem to find mine. So, um, no, it's, it's you know, looking across 18 so far this year, We've had a we've had a fairly decent year and and we we're we're up um, on sales over over last year and um, looking going into uh, the end of the year I feel like there's going to be a uh, a fair amount of sales that happened this last quarter of the year and the reason I'm I'm bullish in that perspective is that you know since 2013 was kind of where I consider the high water mark for uh, for the industry as far as as uh, on farm income goes. And it's kind of slid down from there. So guys haven't done a lot of stuff with their with their equipment since then. And now they're kind of up against uh, what makes more sense for me to do. Spend a lot of money in repairs or spend a lot of money um, or spend that same amount of money on just buying mm-hmm. a new machine. And I think we're seeing that now. Because if, if you just look at the simple economics, there's no reason for there to be a spike in equipment sales. Um, right now, there's not a bunch of money in the marketplace, right. um, you know, so it has to be tied back to guys are doing stuff that they have to, not because of what they want to do. And, that, and that's what I see happening stuff for in 18. And, and I think that'll carry over into 2019 as well. So, Casey, one of the things we've seen, and, and I think you hit the nail right on the head, is there have been a lot more high horsepower four wheel drive tractors sold new this year than I would have expected. And so I think your explanation makes good sense. But talk to us a little bit. What's the resale market like on those traded in high horsepower four wheel drives? Are they still finding demand out there? I think of anything, and I'm, this is what I'm noticing. Anything that I've noticed right now on the four wheel drive marketplace is that that's one of the more stagnant areas ah. um, of, of the used equipment market, and I really can't put my finger on on why that is. Um, I think a lot of it is spec driven has a lot to do with that. You know, you start looking at these four-wheel drives where they have a, a PTO on the back and, and then how that plays into the uh, overall aspect of, of the farm. Um, guys are using those for grain cart tractors now because of the size of grain carts. Um, they're also being able to use it for a tillage tractor, and they're, I mean, it's pretty versatile now, and they have a PTO or a three-point on the back of it. So I think there's a, uh, there's a draw there. Casey, it's, what do you... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say it's it's probably and it's also probably one of the last things um, guys are are looking to upgrade on the farm, and it was kind of what I've seen. They'll get a new row crop tractor before they get the new four wheel drive tractor. So I think that's kind of playing into it as well. 
Casey, what do you see here in the future, the near future, as far as like autonomous tractors or driverless grain carts? Do you see those hitting the markets within the next couple of years, the next five to 10? What are you seeing out in the industry? Well, I, from the driverless grain cart tractor, that, that's already here, that, that, that technology there. Um, I think you've had them on your podcast and I've had them on mm-hmm. mine, but Smart Ag is, has done uh, a lot where they've, they've uh, integrated technology into a into an 8R tractor that yeah. you can drive it, drive itself. I guess they're here. Maybe my question should be, when are you, where are we going to see widespread adoption of this technology? Well, I think over the next two years, you're going to see that kind of technology, the Smart Act technology, really take hold. And, and there's going to be uh, a bigger and bigger audience that, that is drawn to that. Not so much the cool factor, which it is awesome to have a tractor driving itself out in the field. That'd be that'd be crazy, but it's more of a labor issue than anything. Um, and my personal opinion of it is, I think that that kind of technology will be more adopted by the smaller um, mm. producer than the larger producer because the mm. larger producer has access to to more labor than the smaller guy does. And I think they're going to see that as a as a pretty easy thing to kind of ease themselves into. And it's, it's really not that expensive. I mean, to what, Mm -hmm. for what you, for what you think it is on, it's about what you'd pay someone after you figure in all the costs of employment and everything else. It's pretty close to that. And you could easily see a guy that's a, that's a one man guy that's got a hired hand that the hired hand leaves or whatever. And he could get by with, especially during harvest, you know, having his combine and, and then his driverless, green cart tractor out there working. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty simple to, to kind of make that math work. Absolutely. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense exactly for that component you're talking about. The one-man operation, hired man gets in the semi, starts running to the bin site or the elevator, grain cart keeps up with the combine, and all of a sudden, you've just completely eliminated, you know, the hassles of hiring a temporary worker and, you know, making sure they don't dump grain on the ground, which I did here. Mm, Mike, yeah. <laughs> But I want to bring up something different, Casey. We've heard Mm -hmm. a lot of push, or at least I've heard a lot of push, and I don't deal with new machinery day to day. You know, my machinery all uh, was manufactured (laughs) in the early 70s. But dealers have really seemed to have been pushing leases, and they've been doing this for two or three years now. So we're coming up on the end of a lot of those lease terms. Are we going to see a whole bunch of low-houred off-lease machinery coming on the market or I guess how do dealers handle that kind of used inventory? Well, a lot of that depends on where, how that lease was structured and where it goes back to. And most of the, most of the manufacturers have, have a uh, inventory of lease returns that they're working through um, dealer channels and, and other channels to, uh, to get rid of. Um, you know, 2015 was probably the high water mark in the lease still. And it was a cost of ownership. You know, this is what it comes down to operate the machine and what it, you know, what, what that payment cash flow looks like and everything else, you know, so that all played into to a major factor there. Um, there will be, I mean, it just has to be, you know, 17, 18, 19, there'll be some, some lease returns that come back, how that affects the market is going to still be, uh, still be open to, uh, interpretation, but, um, there will be some, some, uh, volume of, of equipment that hits that, that we're going to have to figure our way through. Um, but I also feel like, over 19 and 20, when you start looking out there, that you should start seeing some some rebounding of, of on-farm income. Um, knock on wood, this this China thing gets taken care of, and and we can get some uh, 
more broader uh, trade across the world taking place, and that's going to increase our our uh, pricing quite a bit when you start looking at commodities. But I just feel like as the economy starts to ramp up, hopefully there's a uh, kind of a you know on the scale those two lines start to intersect with each other, and there's a the supply and demand curve does what it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I kind of want to unpack that a little bit more here. So you mentioned that guys are having to trade in because the equipment's getting too old. They, they have to face the idea of do they repair stuff and pay the cost or do they just buy new or buy leased or whatever. What do you see as far as trends go for lending options or for producers to do that if they're in that situation where they have to make a choice this year or next year, but they look at commodity prices and the trade war and maybe they don't have the cash flow to do it. What are you seeing from an industry perspective, are guys going out and finding operation costs from banks? How are they funding this stuff, I guess, is what I'm asking. Yeah. Um, are you talking about from buying a new piece of equipment or, or financing the the repair? I mean, I think either Both. one. Yeah. Okay. yeah. No, I think, I think for the most part, most lenders, I mean, I have Alan Hoskins on here quite a, a couple times, and, and he's he might be a – a, a guy that's above and beyond what, what most bankers would be like. But, you know, I, I got to believe the banks want their money back, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not going to not give a guy the money he needs to go out and, and farm his crop if he's in good shape. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that's going to be part of their of their plan when you start looking at how they're, they're lending them money. You know, they can't afford breakdown during wheat harvest. And then a hell storm comes through and wipes out the, the wheat that their combine sitting in the middle field of. You know what I mean? So there, there's going to be you start looking at diminishing returns and and all the aspects that come into that. There, if I'm a banker, if I'm a lender, I'm going to start looking at the asset as this thing is used up and it's going to cost us more to fix it than it's, than it's ultimately worth. We probably should look at a different asset to bring into it its place. I got to believe that that bankers and and ag lenders are having that that conversation and that approach to um, equipment. Now, in 2015, it was just wait till next year and we'll see what happens. And I, th- I think that conversation has shifted to we probably need to start talking about how we're going to upgrade the equipment that you have. Yeah. And when we're thinking upgrades, Casey, when you're talking to dealers, when you're talking to wholesalers, what part of the country is the hottest right now for getting machinery moved? Is it the Corn Belt? Are we looking Ohio, Pennsylvania, Nebraska? What's what's the hot spot? I don't know that there's a particular region that's hotter than the other. I think it all has to do with diversity. Um, and then it just depends on the area. We're fortunate out here where we have uh, row crops and, and cattle and, and hay. And, you know, we have a lot of different things going for us. When you start looking at areas that are just straight up corn and soybean areas, they're they're that's a tough tough market for them um, because they're relying on that where uh, the worst hit part of, of the economy. So um, I really have to say that to answer that question, it's it's going to be a case by case basis on what level of diversity they have in the area they're at. Yeah, that makes sense for sure, Casey. I think we got to hit it home here. We're talking a lot about. Mc- equipment and machinery and people might be thinking okay what do you know how do you know all of this tell us a little bit about your podcast and kind of your day-to-day research about all of this um, stuff that we've been talking about all right all right so my my podcast is called the moving iron podcast and and the whole concept behind it is it's uh it's basically dealers and um economists 
bankers, whoever, you know, talking about what we see happening in the marketplace. And really, it's it's a very niche thing. We don't we don't talk about anything other than the stuff that affects the, the flow of equipment and, and how that works. And we, we research um, every day. You know, I, I value equipment every day. And some people argue that I'm that I'm wrong, depending on who you talk to. But um, I feel like we have a, a pretty good handle on what we see happening out there. We follow auctions quite quite closely because I'm a firm believer that auctions are a, a true translator of, of what you see happen in the retail marketplace. Um, sooner or later, auction values stabilize or retail values stabilize to the condition of the auction market. So we pay attention to a lot of stuff that's going on there. We also just look at, you know, knowing what we can sell a piece for, uh, you know, cash on the barrel head type of deal makes a big, big difference in what we do. So we have a, uh, we track a lot of different things on a lot of different websites to make sure that we know what the overall um, number of machines that are on out there, um, where the flow of equipment's going, um, how is different you know, like drought situations that we had in the spring um, and then through the winter down south, how that's affecting the flow of north to south flow of combines, um, what that looks like and how that how that all translates to the market. So we have a lot of stuff that are that we track on a daily basis that has a lot to do with just the overall flow and condition of equipment. Fantastic. Folks, if you're interested in machinery, and of course, all of us in agriculture are, check out the Moving Iron podcast. Casey, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, we absolutely encourage everyone to go check out the Moving Iron podcast. Mike and I have both been guests on uh, that podcast he's just got a lot of great stuff besides that I think he does dabble in a couple other areas I think maybe he does like some blogging and some oh, market yeah. analysis stuff so just a dude can't smart sit guy. Still. he's a guy I know I absolutely he's a goer and listeners you should all go to our website at agnewsdaily.com <laughs> you can listen to past episodes and you can always give us your thoughts on social media you can find us on twitter at, at agnewsdaily or just search for agnewsdaily on facebook and we shall appear with that delaney should we let the people go let's let them go